0: This episode is brought to you in collaboration with Neff Madness and AJKD, and that probably means that Hannah is back to punish me with yet another pun. I am! (laughs) Aren't you excited, Paul? (laughs) All right, so this week's pun is from Edward Cordy, who's an MS3 at Florida State College of Medicine, and here goes. This is Edward Cordy. I'm a third-year med student at Florida State, and I got help from my brother Robert, who's a fourth-year at UNC. What is the animal-loving nephrologist's favorite hobby? I don't know. Collecting ducks.
1: All right. That was
2: my favorite.
0: Two of you to create that? That was a two-person operation. (laughs) I've never been angrier.
1: (laughs) I love Paul's reaction.
0: Totally worth it. <laughs> All right, and now on to the episode. <laughs> the SciShow podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used for the diagnosis, treatment, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more of the views, opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted for reflecting official policy or position of any entity. SciShow possibly cashback, rewards, and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible to you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know.
1: This episode of The Curbsiders is sponsored by the American College of Physicians, a professional society for internists with over 154,000 members. For a limited time, post-training docs save $100 on their first-year membership dues. Visit acponline.org forward slash join and use the cur- code CURB100 to get your discount. That's what was that C-U-R- code again? That's C-U-R-B 100. Are there any spaces in that? <laughs> no spaces. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. This is your host, Dr. Matthew Frank Watto, without any of my normal co-hosts tonight. So I'm going to do a very quick intro. This, of course, is the Internal Medicine Podcast, where we strive to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. As you, as you should know by now, the first 10 to 15 minutes of the show are spent just chatting as colleagues, getting uh, book recommendations. Talking about work-life fit. So, if that's not your thing, you can look at the timestamps and skip ahead. On this episode, we will be talking about everything that our curbsiders team could think to ask about hepatorenal syndrome. We go through pathophysiology, differential diagnosis, the basic workup. Uh, should you do large volume paracentesis? Should you do give diuretics? Should you do albumin challenge? If so. How much and how often. We we go through it all. We talk about Turlapress and we talk about Norepi. It's all there. Our guests are a wonderful team from Nef Madness, and I'm going to give quick introductions, quicker than usual, because they they do a great job of introducing themselves in the next portion of the show. Our first guest is Dr. Bill Whittier. He is an associate professor and academic nephrologist at Rush University in Chicago. Our Next guest is Dr. Juan Carlos Velez, who prefers to be called JC or JCV, as you will hear on the show. He is an associate professor of nephrology and the department chair at the Oaksner Clinic Foundation in New Orleans. And finally, last but not least, our chief of nephrology at Cash Memorial, Dr. Joel Toff is here rocking out for his curbsider interview number eight. And actually, I'm told by my my producer, this is number nine if you count the fact that one of his episodes was split into two parts. He is a clinical nephrologist and medical educator. He is the co-founder of the online Twitter journal club as well as Neff Madness. And he is the winner of the 2017 Robert G. Nairns Award for Innovations in Teaching from the ASN. This was a fantastic conversation with our three guests. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. And uh, no pun, no pun. We are here with three wonderful guests uh, for NEF Madness, yet another NEF Madness episode. And we're going to start out, like always, with some one-liners. And we got we to gotta start with our chief of nephrology, Dr. Joel Toff.
3: Hi, Uh, Joel Toff is a a 49-year-old clinical nephrologist. He has managed to straddle the worlds of uh, private practice and academic medicine. He's a partner at St. Clair Nephrology in Detroit while having an academic appointment at William Beaumont Oakland University School of Medicine, where he teaches kidney physiology to second-year medical students. He also does clinical teaching to third years and fourth years, as well as teaching the internal medicine residents and nephrology fellows at Ascension St. John. He's best known as his Twitter alter ego, kidney boy.
1: <laughs> Joe, I, and I told you too, that my kids, they heard the uh, diuretic episode and they were like, this guy sounds like Batman. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then when Your I told children. and then when I told them that I was going to tell you that they were, they're like five and six, they were like, so embarrassed. They're like, don't tell him we said that. So now I'm going to tell them in front of a national audience. Uh, I c- I can neither <laughs> confirm nor deny
3: whether I'm Batman.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you're a very kidney-specific Batman. <laughs> that's what we, is there a kidney like a bat signal for the kidney? That's that's uh, that's what they do around St. Clair Nephrology. Joel just shows up. Okay, let's let's talk, uh, Bill. You're. Bill, why don't you give the audience a one-liner? This is your first time on the show, so tell them a little bit about yourself and maybe something outside of what you do in medicine.
0: Sure, thanks, Matt. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm an academic nephrologist at Rush University in Chicago, and I've been a nephrologist for about 15 years. Uh, I'm active in teaching and clinical research, and um, I'm probably best known for um, being the most, you know, as opposed to, well. Except for Joel and JCV, I'm probably known as the most handsome nephrologist uh, in America. Uh, I don't know, Matt, have you ever been to a nephrology conference?
1: Uh, Not yet. I'm aspiring to attend one in the future, though.
0: So so being the most handsome nephrologist, if you go there, you will see that this is not actually something that's true. I mean, it's not even so... And the other thing is, if we can make sure this stays audio file as opposed to video, then the myth can live on. Yeah, Uh,
1: and my other question was going to be: Do you want this? (laughs) We are going to have some nephrologists listening to this. Are you sure you want me not to? Do you want me to cut this whole part right here? (laughs)
0: Just just keep the myth alive, but but make sure it's audio only, because I really don't need anybody finding out factual information about this
2: nonsense.
1: Okay.
0: Thanks for having me on, though.
1: Okay, JC, did you want to give a one liner about yourself?
2: Yes, sure. Uh, Juan Carlos Vélez, um, a 48-year-old Peruvian nephrologist, uh, work, practicing nephrology in the United States uh, for also about uh, uh, 15 years, 13 years. Lost count. Um, and uh, my uh, Twitter handle is at uh, uh, Hepato, which uh, comes... Uh, handy with this uh, tonight's discussion, Uh, and that reflects one of my main areas of interest, which is uh, hepatorenal physiology. Um, And yeah, I'm I'm current uh, chair of of nephrology at Ochsner Clinic Foundation in New Orleans, where I moved two years ago. And outside medicine, my three uh, favorite hobbies are, number one, to play soccer, number two, to talk about soccer, and number three, to watch soccer. So you get the point. (laughs)
1: I like it, JC. I'm going to start with you for just some of our routine questions here. Can you can you give the audience like what's some of the best advice that you heard in your career?
2: Uh, yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think that the best advice in my career, uh, I will start with a bit of advice at home, which kind of affects all your life, which is. Uh, uh don't ever do things to others that uh, don't want him to do on you to you uh, and that's kind of what uh what i think uh, every every day in life you know in general uh and it kind of applies to what we do in a hospital too you know to take care of a patient's uh, like your family and like yourself
1: fantastic bill what about you any great advice that you can share with the audience
0: i think um I think one of the keys to sort of success in life, um, whether you're in academics or private practice, is communication. I think there's a lot of times where hepatology will come by and think one thing, and nephrology comes by and thinks another, and we all puff out our chests and say, we must do it this way, and we must do it that way, and cardiology says we have to diurese, and we say we have to give fluids, and so on, and, and instead, you know, you just kind of put yourself in the other person's shoes, and you, you see it their side of their side of the picture, whether it's clinical medicine around a patient or whether it's any argument in real life, I think that kind of seeing the other person's side is really, really important. And and actually, I think this communication gets you a lot more effective uh, ways of, of being a better person and, you know, taking care of patients too. So I think improving communication is probably the number one key to success.
1: So the follow up question would be: Any specific resource that that taught you that, or is this just like modeling from from your mentors or your your parents, your your family?
0: Yeah, I, I have one really. He's a good friend of mine, and and he's also a mentor. And he um, wasn't necessarily the brightest person ever, um, but he treated all the adults ahead of him like a peer. He, meaning like like he could just like be himself around anyone. Right. So he talked to the president of the hospital and he would be himself. And, and now because of that, he's like, you know, moved up and up and I, I don't have to give his title or anything, but <laughs> he's moved up and up in the world. And, 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 really, all it took was really good communication as opposed to brilliance or working in a lab too long. It was really just being able to communicate. And, um, I think that's really helped out a lot.
1: Okay. Joel, I think it's been a while since we asked you about some advice you got anything for us?
3: No, I was I was prepared with the pick of the week. I didn't come with. I don't. I don't have anything. Okay,
1: right so let's let's move into pick a, picks of the week then, and I'll I'll let you start. What are you recommending this week?
3: Okay, so I'm, I'm, what I'm recommending is uh, Checklist Manifesto. This is uh, one of the books by Atul Gawande, who is a uh, prominent uh, healthcare writer. He's an oncologic surgeon um, from Hopkins, So he's now working on the. Um, Uh, Amazon, and I think it's Berkshire Hathaway uh, Healthcare Initiative that they're kind of putting together. Um, If you haven't heard of him, he's kind of like the Malcolm Gladwell of medicine. Like He picks an interesting topic and just dives deep into it. And one of these uh, topics that he went into is uh, is how could we use uh, checklists to improve medicine? And uh, this book just kind of goes through uh, how checklists are used. And we often hear about them in uh, flight, in, in, uh, in airlines. But he kind of shows how they're used in a lot of different things. He talks about how you build a skyscraper. And then he talks about uh, implementing checklists for the World Health Organization for surgery and improving safety in surgery. And it's a, just a fascinating journey. And as I'm reading it, it just kind of exemplifies like, it, you know, when you listen to the curbsiders, you're, so much of it is about learning the latest little tricks and the latest advances in medicine. But what really improves patient care is just making sure you do all the basic stuff and don't miss it. Don't forget the sub-Q heparin. Right, like that. That's going to make a bigger difference than knowing, you know, uh, you know, the latest uh, uh, how how to get the latest genetic testing. Right, just don't miss the basic stuff. And that's what this checklist manifesto is about. I'd highly recommend it. it's a great book.
1: Well, I think it's time now that we move on to a case from Cash Slack Memorial, so that we can start talking about the main event here. Uh, so this is this is of course inspired by Neff Madness, the bill you had written about this. uh, You had written about two topics for Neff Madness, and we decided to sort of make this more general, kind of gear this one more towards our general internist audience. So we're going to start with a case here. This is Mr. Clyde Rosas. He is a 54-year-old male with known cirrhosis from... Severe alcohol use disorder, and he presents to the emergency department with swollen legs, abdominal distension. He's had previous large-volume paracentesis for ascites. He's previously been treated for SBP. He has known varices, previous hospitalizations for hepatic encephalopathy. He's currently being worked up for liver transplant, and previous MELD score was 26. His creatinine was 1.4, INR 1.5 at the time. He takes the following medications— Furosemide, spironolactone, lactulose, omeprazole, propranolol for variceal uh, bleeding prophylaxis. He's on trim sulfa for SBP prophylaxis, and he admits sometimes he's not taking all his medications on admission. You know, you um, on admission, a diagnostic paracentesis shows signs of SBP, and he's initiated on treatment with ceftriaxone. The labs on admission. Uh, are pretty much what we'd expect from someone with end stage liver disease, but now we're noting that the creatinine is 2.6. His baseline is 1.4, and his serum sodium is 130. So uh, we're going everyone's gonna get a chance to talk here. Bill, Bill, I'm gonna start with you. When you, when you see a patient like this, how do you kind of approach this newly elevated creatinine in a patient with cirrhosis?
0: Yeah, unfortunately, this is becoming more and more common. I, I think the first thing to make sure, you know, and certainly in somebody who has alcoholic cirrhosis, thinking that that there's some sort of hemodynamic insult that's happening to the kidney. Um, but in other patients who have cirrhosis from hepatitis C or possibly autoimmune, they could have another inflammatory glomerular disease going on. The first place you want to start is by just looking at the routine urinalysis and make sure that just there's that that's consistent with a hemodynamic media injury, no blood, no protein, To make sure it's really just a bland urine. Once you're there, and most often it is there, 95% of the time, and certain, probably 99% of the time in someone with alcohol cirrhosis, then you're looking at some varied degree of not enough blood getting to the kidney, okay? And there's a lot of different uh, ways to get that, but the three main ways that you want to break it down to in your mind is: could this be um, not enough blood to the kidney, meaning the kidney is just pre-renal, and it's still going to respond to getting that patient to euvolemia? That'd be the first one. The second one would be not enough blood getting to the kidney now that the kidney is in complete shock, which would be ATN or acute tubular necrosis. And then the third one, which is probably the most common, is not enough blood getting to the kidney. And that's because of this persistent liver disease uh, and the physiology that goes behind that. And so the way to sort of sort out those three is by using the urine sodium uh, or the fractional excretion of sodium as well. And and this is just sort of on a board's um, view. Uh, when you're in practice and in real life, sometimes it doesn't always work out perfectly, kind of like... Uh, Urine eosinophils are an incredible test on your boards. The positive predictive value of urine eosinophils for interstitial nephritis on your boards is somewhere around 98%. But the positive predictive value in real life for urine eosinophils is somewhere around 40%. It's a horrible test that I've never ordered in 15 years. (laughs) So some of these things are are real life and some of them for the boards. But what you want to really do then after urinalysis is bland is check that the urine sodium in the phenol is either low or not low. And if it's not low, you're, let, you're possibly in this realm of ATN or acute tubular necrosis therapy for that is supportive. The kidney's stunned. We've got to wait and let it get better, still try to establish euvolemia. And if you're in the low phenol realm, then the differential comes down to being pre-renal or not. So classically, we would always give a volume challenge. And if everything gets better, then it's just pre-renal. If everything doesn't get better, then you're into this hepato-renal um, vortex, if you will. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I'd like to. Can you hear me? Am I coming through? Yeah.
1: yeah. Okay.
3: So I, I'd like to just step in there, just and just kind of from a uh, kind of uh, add on to that bit about the wards and about uh, actually taking care of patients, and that. In my mind, in the presence of cirrhosis, you're always going to have a low urine sodium and a low FENA. And I don't find that, like, again, if the FENA is elevated, if you have an elevated urine sodium, yeah, you're going to be de- de- dealing with ATN. But again, if the FENA is low, all the different, the full differential still on the table, it can still be ATN, it can still be pre-renal and it can still be hepatorenal. So I, I just want to emphasize, you know, for really taking care of patients, the a low phenol doesn't rule anything out and you're going to have to deal with the full realm. And the other thing I'd like to uh, also emphasize is, uh, the specificity of the urinalysis also falls off is that, uh, when you have an elevated bilirubin in these, which these patients typically have, uh, just uh, uh, Typical Highland casts get real stained, and will often be misread as um,
2: as a dirty
3: grit. Yeah, as dirty granular casts, um, and and you may misinterpret uh, that UA as a, uh, a an indicative of acute tubular necrosis when all it is is somebody who could be either pre-renal or hepatorenal syndrome, which will both have these stained Highland casts. So you just need to be real careful and not to prematurely jump to your diagnosis.
1: And hyaline casts generally benign finding just kind of protein. Yeah. They're usually clear, but you're saying in the presence of bilirubin, they're just kind of stained that color. That,
3: that's exactly right. Uh, yeah. So we see these hyaline casts anytime you get concentrated in acidic urine, which is going to happen in, you know, first morning urines have a lot of them. Prerenal patients have a lot of them and cirrhotic patients going to have a lot of them.
1: JC, is there anything you would add to the differential diagnosis that that Bill was highlighting there? Uh,
2: b- before I would do that, I would try to just emphasize a couple of things. So assessment of these patients is, is always challenging. And I think that um, at the end of the day, you just need to do everything that everybody does, but just do it as best as possible. And that starts with the history and physical, you know. Uh, you cannot underestimate the power of that. you know if you have somebody coming in with fifteen bowel movements on lactulose, yeah you're, you're gonna you're gonna have to do a very hard, hard you're gonna have a hard time convince me that that patient does not uh, have just azotemia. Uh, you know it's, so is but did anybody double the know to two hundred milligrams a day recently a week ago prior to those elements in the history are very, very helpful. So that's the exercise that I try to do. Get a lot from the history. Um, and then, once you examine the patient, uh, it's also important. You know, if you look at the, all the reviews and, and recommendations about hepatorenal talk about volume expansion first, giving albumin. And if you have somebody that comes in with cirrhosis and has got bilateral hydrothorax and maybe some even pulmonary edema, very edematous. You can't just volume expand those patients. You know it could be detrimental for the patient. So those things that you have to do always in the beginning.
1: You were you were describing kind of two different patients. One patient who's clearly um, hypovolemic, and then another patient who's who's got pleural effusions, edema, ascites, are clearly volume overloaded. How how can we approach those two patients differently? Uh, what what would you do with that those patients? Let's maybe we'll take the volume overloaded patient first.
2: Well, I guess the importance of that is that, uh, as we're going to probably discuss uh, throughout tonight, later on, is that uh, a lot of times when you assess these patients with acute kidney injury in the context of cirrhosis, uh, if your initial workup with the urinalysis is unrevealing, urine sodium is less than 20, everything else is equal. You're kind of forcing situation. Okay, this patient could be hepatorenal, but could also just be volume depleted, and it's important to to assess the patient uh, before you just jump, pull the trigger with with albumin. If a patient is has signs of volume overload, further volume expansion could be uh, detrimental to the patient you don't have to follow the book necessarily. You have to deviate and look at the patient and say, all right, you know, I'm not going to volume expand this patient. This patient is already probably into a hepatorenal physiology. Uh, conversely, if you have a cirrhotic that uh, doesn't have any peripheral edema, you know, you how often do you see that? And you don't find any kind of butter-like edema around the ankles. Then you know, I start to wonder, you know, if this patient doesn't have any peripheral edema and his ascites is kind of soft maybe that's an indication of, of, of volume depletion for that particular patient. And I'll be much more uh, confident um, with a trial of intravenous albumin for the first 24 hours. So those are the things that, that, that I use to try to uh, decide my first steps when you assess these patients. Hey, JCV, you
3: use that term uh, hepato-renal physiology. Can you, can you just kind of walk us through what you mean when you say that?
2: Yeah, I, it's kind of a, something that I've uh, adopted from tradition, really. I re- see uh, hearing my former mentors, uh, you know, Jim Tomlin, Charlie O'Neill at Emory, when I was a fellow, they would use it. And even when I was a resident in Chicago, my mentor, John Ball, would use that. And it kind of made sense to me that, you know, we try to have this this uh, dichotomized approach that whether you have renal syndrome as the only cause of AKI or you don't. And that clearly is really pro- not the case. You know, even, it's the same situation when we talk about perenal azotemia and ATN. You know, those are ends of a spectrum. So what I mean when I say about renal physiology is that you have a, a, a patient with cir- advanced cirrhosis. They have circulatory dysfunction with uh, peripheral vasodilation and splenic vasodilation and renal vasoconstrictors. Uh, increased levels of, uh, in, you know, increased activation of sympathetic nervous system and renin-angiotensin system, all that is in place, and, and that's definitely going to affect uh, kidney function to some extent. Uh, and so you could be volume depleted and have the same pathophysiology going on at the same time. You could already have intrinsic tubular injury, but you can still have all the same. Uh, hormonal systems, uh, trigger and active. So I think that's why I, I try to use that terminology to recognize that you can have coexistence of, of, of more than one, uh, path, uh, you know, pathophysiological process in the same patient.
1: And jay- Z, this right. is why it's it's difficult for us as internists. Let's say you're you're in the hospital. You're seeing this patient. They come in. and they let's say we think they're dry based on the history. Like the example you gave, they've been having. 15 bowel movements a day from lactulose should we be giving them and their creatinine's 2.6 like this patient would would you choose colloid would you give albumin as the fluid and then there's more than one type of albumin so which one should we give if if you could be specific so our audience can kind of try to actually use this information in practice uh,
2: sure uh, i i have to say that i don't have necessarily of uh, any position that is very strong about the percentage of albumin, you know, typically we do the, the 12, 25 uh, percent or 12.5 percent albumin that is available in the hospital. Uh, I am not aware of anybody. Ah, uh, publishing a study comparing five percent versus that. I'm not even aware of anybody comparing colloids versus crystalloids in the in in the setting of cirrhosis. A lot of what we do in the management of these patients come from from this uh, international club of ascites that that have shared their expertise through through, through many many years, and they uh, decided to provide guidelines. Many of those guidelines ba- are based on their expertise, and of course there is. Some foundation to 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 support the use of albumin in cirrhosis, and that's what I do. Um, it, it's uh, I, I I do think it's probably more effective, but but I, I don't know if we have really strong science to show that is better than than uh, crystalloids. Yeah, JCV, that, I,
3: I, I kind of have the feeling that uh, the volume of distribution of saline in the presence of cirrhosis is essentially infinite. That saline that you give just ends up in their ascites very quickly and is not, a, not an effective solution. And so in those patients, I'm, I'm also reaching for colloids.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I think that's what, what we do. We've been doing that, and that's kind of the general recommendation. Uh, I guess my point is, if you have a cirrhotic that has uh, presents with volume depletion um, from uh, from lactulose or from diarrhea or from overdiuresis. Uh, you know occasionally i have I do do both. I give them uh, albumin and may give them some uh, some saline along with that. I mean, it, it's it's not the norm. But when the patients are clearly volume depleted, uh, I may use both, but but not 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 commonly,
0: and I think your point's a good one. There's this big spectrum here of the renal versus atN versus pre-renal, and we're always trying to figure out which one it is. But you know what? Prerenal is going to get better if you get more blood to the kidney. Hepatorenal is going to get better if you get more blood to the kidney. And ATN eventually is going to get better if you give enough time and give more blood to the kidney. So we're always trying to establish euvolemia in these patients. And the only way to establish euvolemia in any patient, because you, there's not a good test for volume in anyone, is to go in and look at them. And just like Juan Carlos is saying, is if they are massively, you know, for cirrhotic, if they've got a kind of a softer belly, if, by the history they've had all these bowel movements... Maybe you need to give them some intravenous volume resuscitation, and usually we choose colloid in this situation. But if, they're, if they've got JVP up the wazoo and they've got RALS, you know, we know we're going to be taking more of a nephrocentric viewpoint to diuresing the heck out of them to get rid of all their ascites and everything. So a lot of it comes down to the bedside, which is sometimes hard to figure out on a boards question. <laughs>
1: Bill what what diuretics might you choose because it's it's always been a bit confusing to me I know when you read spironolactone is supposed to be the first one you give how do you start diuretics on this patient let's say they come into the ER and they're the patient that we think is more on the volume overloaded side what might you get, what might a starting regimen look like
0: The different diuretics are confusing to some people but they kind of all come down to how much water and how much volume you're trying to get into your urine and in the patient with cirrhosis, they have water overload and volume overload, and so it's really nice to pick a diuretic that gets rid of both. So I usually start with a loop diuretic, but knowing the pathophysiology is such high activation of the renin-angiotensin aldosterone system, I'm very quick to add aldo- uh, aldosterone antagonists. Um, so I'll often do both together. Well, I'll give a loop diuretic and aldactone, watching, of course, you know, for the potassium, um, and uh, we typically in the cardiorenal patients are even using metolazone or some of the loop diuretics but uh, i mean i'm sorry the, some of the um thiazide diuretics but those sometimes get you into trouble with further hyponatremia so i typically i typically stick to loops and aldactone
1: Joel any magic to the starting doses there is it like do you keep to this ratio you know the 100 of spironolactone to to 40 of furosemide
3: i'm a little hesitant to load up spironolactone in patients that have failing kidneys Right, I get you know the thing that's going to push you to force you to decide whether you're going to dialyze or not is going to be that hyperkalemia, and I'm reluctant unless I see good urine output and uh, and, a, and a kidney that I'm convinced is going to be doing okay before I start hitting them with the high doses of spironolactone. Yeah. Much more comfortable, much much more comfortable with furosemide.
1: So for this, for this patient here, I'm going to, I want, I want, uh, Joel, I'll ask you to nickel down on what, what dose of Lasix might you hit him with? Are you going to use your 20 times creatinine formula? Never fails. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So 20 times 2.6. Actually, let's, let's, let's back up a little bit,
3: uh, because the, the patients with cirrhosis oftentimes have a lower creatinine than you would expect. They tend to have their decreased muscle mass, decreased creatinine production from their liver disease. Their creatinine probably overestimates their GFR and their kidney function is probably worse than what you would think just by looking at their creatinine. So I may push a little bit higher on that Lasix dose than the 20 times creatinine.
1: Okay. So instead of like roughly this would have been, this person would have been around 60. So you might give them 80 or or more to start with. That's right. That's exactly right. All right. Okay. I think I'm getting this. So this is, so for this case here, we sort of talked about the basic, the basic workup. Um, And uh, actually before I do the recap, I I wanted to ask, uh, JC, is there a is there any like is there any evidence to this ratio? I, I sort of asked Joel about it. I, I when I looked back, it looked like there were maybe some papers from like the eighties or something where they initially were trying spironolactone versus spironolactone plus Lasix and seeing who got hypokalemic, who got kidney injury. Do you know of any? Do you do you believe the evidence that we have to have them in these ratios to make to, uh, to treat patients?
2: Well, I I've, I've remember uh, reading that literature in the context of management of refractory ascites, but not in the context of acute kidney injury. Uh, and it, it is all literature. I have to say, I admit, I don't recall the specifics, but I remember learning that as a, as a student uh, that it has some... Um, uh, Foundation to use it, but I don't think it's something that is necessarily useful in, a- in AKI. Particularly, uh, you know, as Joe's mentioned, spironolactone is not something that we use a lot in AKI.
1: That's that's true. It is. It was. Uh, we we talked about it on previous shows. It was in the case of refractory ascites. You're, so so I guess we don't necessarily have to apply it to the to these patients uh, that we're talking about or the case here. the The next question. Kind of back to the differential diagnosis. These patients could be obstructed as well, and usually I've seen that they say you have to get the renal ultrasound. Now we've this is another thing we've kind of fought about on previous episodes where we think the renal ultrasound, unless someone has risk factors for obstruction, it's kind of a low yield uh jc do you think we is is that something that you get on all would you get one on this guy he's not really giving us a history of, of obstruction no he has no issues with bph that we know of no history of kidney stones
2: uh <laughs> yeah we, we always we always get a renal ultrasound uh, but you're right if you want to be uh, really uh uh accurate with making statements you would say renal ultrasound is a mandatory test in the assessment of chronic kidney disease but is not a mandatory test in the assessment of AKI but 99.9% of the times it gets ordered and i am guilty myself i would say just get an ultrasound just be complete a workup but but if you ask me a question um, whether it's always needed, I don't think so. I don't think it's always needed. And 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 not only the history, of the suspicion, uh, is also the urine uh, findings. If you have a urinalysis that shows no protein, no blood, then you have, it's less likely that you're going to be dealing with some sort of parenchymal renal disease. Uh, but if you have hematuria proteinuria, at that point, you must obtain a renal ultrasound because you, you can have some distorted anatomy that is going to, uh, point you in a different direction when you look at a differential.
3: Okay. You know, my my feeling on that ultrasound is it's a uh, uh, it's co- it's a test that has no risk to the patient, and it is one of the few causes of AKI where you can fix it. Yeah. Right. This is a if you find that obstruction, like to me, it's a uh, I, I, it's unacceptable to ever miss that. Yeah. To to have a you know the treatment of obstruction is not dialysis right we have effective ways of taking care of that and I completely concur that its cost benefit ratio may not work out and it may and it's positive very few times but I think it's unacceptable to miss that diagnosis and right. so I always order it the
1: the workaround we had suggested uh, it it might be a little complicated in someone with cirrhosis and ascites but bladder scan. Or you can, you know, if you could palpate the bladder, put a Foley in, let the drain the urine, you know. Bladder scan
0: uh, and cirrhosis with yeah. the cytosis is a really tough one. Yeah, I right, do. right. Like, so. But, but, but I, I get it. Obviously, yeah. you know, if you're going to the masses, you shouldn't order renal ultrasound on anybody. No. But just like everybody said, it's, a, it's relatively inexpensive, low risk, and reversible cause of renal failure. Yeah. Hard to, um, hard to say you don't want to order that test because you can miss something irreversible.
1: And are you recommending a a Foley, Uh, Bill, I'll ask you first, do you generally put a Foley, let's say this patient was oliguric, creatinine 2.6, coming in the door, Um, we're going to be, uh, we were talking about the case where we were thinking we might do diuretics if we think they're overloaded. Are you putting a Foley in those patients or do you think that's necessary?
0: Yeah, I'm not sure that I'm allowed to do a Foley catheter at rush anymore um, (laughs) because uh, every time I've tried to do one... um, Uh, Everybody yells at me about Caudis, which are these, you know, catheter-associated UTIs. And of course, we don't, as nephrologists, we don't really need a Foley just to measure urine output and make ourselves uh, satisfied. We can use other tests to sort of differentiate those. But, but if you have a man who comes in with renal failure and it's undetermined what the etiology is, uh, a Foley can be diagnostic and therapeutic. Uh, so sometimes I, I will I will put that in. Although this guy may have platelets that are low, he may have an INR that's high. There may be other complications with that, and he's got some pretty other obvious reasons for ac- acute kidney injury. So I don't think that I would be uh, I would go in there and start screaming about how this person didn't get a Foley. The you know when I come in in the morning after uh, the night uh, of a uh, morning report or something, I'd be okay with not having a Foley in this patient since we have so many other etiologies of his renal failure.
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna move us along with our case a little bit. And we've we've talked about some of these things already. So let's say I, I've already given you the patient, the patient's creatinine is two point six. He says he's peeing less, urinalysis, there's no protein, there's no hematuria. We do get the renal ultrasound, it just shows mild chronic parenchymal disease. His urine sodium is less than ten. There were no muddy brown casts on the urine microscopy. Urine eosinophils were ordered uh just to to piss Bill off. And uh <laughs> they're negative. <laughs> uh, Shocking. Yeah, Shocking, not helpful. And uh we stopped, he was on um he was he was on trim sulfa, which we stopped uh along with the diuretics. Let's we're we're back to saying, let's say that this was one of the patients where we we felt coming in the door, we weren't exactly sure of the volume status. We decided to, it wasn't really pointing strongly in either direction, so we started. We decided to hold the diuretics. So at this point, it, it seems like the initial kind of where where we are. The initial workup's negative, so now we have to try to figure out how to perfuse the kidneys, right? How to get blood flow to the kidneys, Bill. Um, and maybe I'll try to summarize a little bit, and then you guys can correct me if I'm missing anything, just to make sure. We so we said, we're definitely going to do a history and physical exam. See, you know, is this person gaining weight? Uh, do, th- do their lungs sound like they're filled with fluid? Their legs and belly feel like they're full with fluid? Or is this the person that says they, they've they been nauseous, vomiting, having diarrhea, haven't been able to eat or drink anything? You know, those are the two extremes. Unfortunately, a lot of the times we have people in the middle and that's kind of where it becomes tricky. Uh, we We got the basic workup, which was just sort of uh, some urine sodium, maybe maybe calculate a FINA, uh urine ultra uh, renal ultrasound, or place a Foley if you're allowed to at your institution, <laughs> and then uh, and then from there, uh, JC, why don't I throw it to you? What might be a next step for the patient where you're not exact? You're not quite sure about the volume status.
2: Yeah, so that's a very common scenario, right? And unfortunately, in this field of nephrology. Um, a lot of times our best diagnostic tests our our therapeutic trials right we are in a situation where we think this could be uh the diagnosis but we're never certain rarely i, w- I wouldn't say never but we're rarely
1: Oh jc you cu- cut out for a second you said we're rarely we're rarely certain i think you were saying
0: I may be able to help finish what he was saying. Yeah. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think that um, any volume issue is, like I said earlier, difficult. If it's cardiorenal or hepatorenal, we have tests for water, right? I mean, I know when someone's water depleted, they're hypernatremic. I know when somebody's water overloaded, they're hyponatremic. Those are easy to, to define and determine how much water someone needs removed and how much water someone needs to be given, but volume is an assessment. It's it's a judgmental assessment. And, and what you need to do is obviously look at the patient, like we've said. And then the one thing that you don't do when you're worried about a volume disorder is you don't treat with both uh, diuretics and volume resuscitation at the same time. Um, there, there are times when I will give Lasix and normal saline at the same time. I may be trying to get, get rid of potassium. I may be trying to get rid of water and fix somebody's hyponatremia. I may be trying to get rid of calcium. There's all sorts of reasons to do so. Uh, when you're not sure of someone's volume, though, giving them intravenous volume and Lasix. Same. So what you end up doing clinically is you kind of pick one. You go into the bedside. You see if the patient's what you think is more volume depleted versus volume overload, and you pick that. So you diurese the heck out of them the next day, and then more is a temic, and you were wrong. Or you give them seven liters of normal saline the next day, and they're intubated, and you were wrong. But you know, you, and, I, and I'm sort of joking, but at the same time, you know then, because you haven't done both at once. You do, if you do both at once the next day, you're screwed. You have no idea what happened. So you pick one based on the least clinical harm and based on your best judgment, because that's what volume assessment is. And then you go with that and you kind of go all in on that. And then you decide if you've made them better or not. And honestly, in most cirrhotics, especially if they're hepatorenal and they're always a relative hepatorenal because of the lack of the blood to the kidney, it's really hard to make them better until their liver gets better.
1: Joel, anything to add there? Any uh, You were nodding a lot. So it seems like you you kind yeah, a lot no, of that he, resonates. Yeah.
3: We, we, I think we're cut from the same cloth. We're both, we're both clinicians first. Uh, and the, the only other thing that bothers me is when someone says, okay, I think they're volume depleted, but then they give 75 CCs an hour of fluid. And so the next day you're like, well, we did give them a fluid challenge, but I'm not sure if it was enough. Like, don't, make sure you give enough so that if it didn't work, you're going to say we were wrong. Not that we didn't quite get there. Like you're, you're giving yourself 24 hours to do it. Give enough that you're going to be on one side of the fence or the other by the next day and never go and not saying, eh, maybe we need to do this for another day.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I completely agree with that, Joel. Uh, this is one of the things that, and that applies to any form of AKI. When you are deciding to do a fluid challenge, I always tell the residents on my team, hey, what time is it? It's 4.20 p.m. in the afternoon. We get this consult. By the time you uh, give your recommendations to give fluids and the residents get the message and then pass on to the, uh, put the orders in the computer, the nurses get it, the pharmacy ships the truck to the floor. You know, It's midnight before the the fluid bag is at the bedside. In and the, the next blood draws at 4 a.m.
0: At 4 a.m.
2: <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's always that. So it's always try to make sure that you uh, plan it correctly. So the next morning you have an answer that the intervention worked or not.
1: I was reading that the albumin is one, one gram per kilogram. Uh, yeah, one gram per kilogram per day for at least 48 hours is sort of the traditional albumin challenge. Is that something that you're routinely doing? where you, you mentioned maybe giving saline and albumin. I know saline is much quicker to get your hands on, so that's probably what I would start with, especially when I'm first seeing the person.
2: No, I think that the, the, the volume replacement, volume uh, expansion should be done with albumin in this patient, uh, 25 grams IVQ6. The only instances that i recommended adding saline is when I the patient is in an obvious state of volume depletion and I have a clear history and exam and I am convinced I'm going to give him more than just the albumin but that's not the norm the norm is just to do the traditional 25 grams IVQ6 for the first 24 hours and reassess
1: Got it okay JC I wanted to ask I wanted to ask real quick with with the albumin that we're giving can you can you kind of talk about how that relates to the pathophysiology you you mentioned before Splenic uh, vasod uh, vasodilation. Can you kind of walk us through that again, and how these different therapies are gonna that we're gonna talk about are gonna hit each part of that?
2: Yeah, sure. So, so the the this cirrhotic state uh, it's a state of uh, hyperdynamic circulation. Uh, the stiff liver triggers uh, a number of uh, vasodilators, uh, primarily nitric oxide, that causes uh, splanchnic vasodilation. So that leads to a, a very poor effector circulatory volume that is bred uh, by this sympathetic nervous system and the renal utensin system uh, that subsequently lead to re- uh, release of uh, vasoconstrictors, uh, norepinephrine and utensin II et cetera. Uh, there's also an, a different pathway that leads to this uh, renal vasoconstriction, which is known as a hepatorenal reflex not a very uh, not a very uh, popular uh, 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 p- uh, hypothesis of the pathogenesis but it's very intriguing it relates to increases in portal pressure itself uh, sending a sympathetic signal to the brain back to the kidney to trigger vasoconstriction so it's a mechanism that doesn't really relate to the effective circulatory volume um, and so those are sort of a two different lines of thought of how the kidneys end up with sustained vasoconstriction. And um, and obviously they have high they have this poor effective of circulatory volume. So, with albumin, you're kind of trying to replenish that, maximize the effective circulatory volume. But it's also interesting uh, data showing that albumin actually um, it kind of uh, models the endothelial dysfunction that occurs in hepatorenal syndrome and in a way try to, tries to mitigate this uh, peripheral vasodilation uh, that occurs in cirrhosis. So, although we think about albumin as a volume expander, it may have an effect that directly attacks the pathogenesis. Yeah, there's some thoughts that albumin,
3: and I don't know if this has been discredited, but I've heard people
2: banter around that uh, albumin may bind some...
3: Uh, uh, circulatory factors that are uh, uh, directly causing the
1: vasoconstriction.
3: Is that something that's still considered a viable th- uh, hypothesis?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's the same literature that I've come across.
1: I've never, I've never heard that before. That's that's really interesting.
2: The- so and, and and then you get to that point. Uh, the next step is a vasoconstrictor. So uh, why would you use a vasoconstrictor to treat the syndrome? Where uh, as I as I said, uh, the, this splenic vasodilation appears to be sort of a trigger for the uh, maladaptive renal vasoconstriction. So by using a vasoconstrictor. Uh, you would uh, sort of reset the signal that goes into the kidney and kind of uh, counteract this vasoconstriction. Um, and when you try to look into the history, at least I've tried numerous times to see why is that uh, we kind of s- g- stuck with this vasopressin um, uh, analogs, um, it appears that va- vasopressin V1 receptors are expressed in this splegna circulation, but it's not the only system that controls uh, the blood flow in, in, in the mesenteric vessels and the sublime circulation. But that's one of them. So essentially, you just want to restore that. And that was kind of the foundation why uh, myriad and octodide and ornipressin, terlipressin, vasopressin were tested uh, back in the sort of late 90s when the this, this studies uh, started.
1: So I'll throw this question, Bill, we can start with you and we'll, we'll see uh, see where we get with this. So everyone else can chime in too. W- let's say with our patient here, so he was oliguric, creatinine 2.6. We gave him the albumin challenge. Let's say we even did almost 48 hours. Uh, he got 100, you know, he got the 25 Q6 of albumin and now creatinine's actually worsened. His creatinine's 3 what how soon do you pull the trigger on on these vasoconstrictors that we're talking about here and can you yeah and let's just start there
0: classic teaching again from a lot of hepatologies. once you define it as hepatorenal that's when you start into this hepatorenal cocktail right which sounds sort of exciting and sexy and all that <laughs> um and that's what hepatologists mostly are, right? We we can't disagree with that. Um, <laughs> you've
1: you've told it you set that up from the beginning tonight.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um so you know, in, in somebody who hasn't responded to volume and in a lot of in, in reality in real life, I don't necessarily even wait to somebody not responding to volume because most of my patients come in already so overloaded, they don't have a history of having a recent peritonitis or a new onset peritonitis, which might which might make you a little volume depletion and or volume depleted and kick tick uh, kick you over the edge. um, but a lot of my patients, if I've gotten to that point where we're given two days of albumin, there's no response i'm i'm I've already started the panoneal cocktail twenty four hours before um, and in in this country, we use the paterrenal cocktail of mitadrin and um, and uh, albumin um and if in it was in uh, in Europe we would be using trilopressin uh, and, and there's a lot of different trials, which I think uh, j c b can hopefully go through some of these to um differentiate which one is really the best and what may be the best for the future.
2: Yeah, so so I agree. Uh, Mitered in is uh, the most popular cocktail used in the United States. Uh, unfortunately, uh, in our institution, every cirrhotic that arrives at the emergency room uh, with the creatinine, that is a little bit above normal, gets Mitered octotide. Uh, immediately, as as part of the initial orders, which kind of muddies the picture when you try to then um, assess whether the patient is uh, HRS or not, uh, it's hard to do that when the patient have been already receiving vasoconstrictors uh, on admission, um, and and then it comes down to uh, what is the most effective, and modern and um has a role, is a very uh, Inexpensive uh, combination that can be given oral and subcutaneously in uh, a regular floor. Uh, so it's convenient. And there is some uh, data showing some degree of efficacy. Uh, and, and in my personal experience, hasn't been very successful, but a small percentage of patients may respond to that. When you look at all the clinical trials um, that have been tested, uh, that have been uh, conducted to test different drugs for hepatorenal syndrome. Uh, ultimately it comes down to the mean arterial pressure. Uh, what is the achieved mean arterial pressure during the, during the trial? Whether you use milder than terlipressin, and the one that I particularly use a lot, which is norepinephrine, it always comes down to when the signal. The signal for uh, renal recovery is strongly co- associated with uh, improvement in mean arterial pressure. And it could be a debate about, you know, how high you want to push the MAP. That's sort of a, a different topic. But the bottom line is that um, if you look at a very small trial in 1999, I, I remember, if I remember correctly, uh, they designed a study to push the miniature pressure by 50 minutes of mercury micro- with and octrodite. And it's something that gets lost uh, because a lot of times patients get admitted, a hospital medicine team starts the mitogen and combination, but, but there's really little attention to the miniature pressure. Uh, and it's sort of an inertia there. It, you know, 72 hours later, uh, you know, they're thinking, well, this, this consult nephrology, nothing has happened. Well, of course, you know, the dose was never touched. It was left at a starting dose. Um, and, um, and, and that's something that needs to be emphasized. And, and uh, that's why it t- I often goes straight to norepinephrine because it's just more effective raising the MAP. And and I can get an answer a little bit faster. Hey, JCV, uh, if you have a patient who
3: looks like a hepatorenal syndrome, but they have a systolic blood pressure, of 130
2: or 140, do you kind of eliminate that from your differential? <sighs> Great question. Um, if the miniature pressure, and, and I don't know if I necessarily, uh, I guess, systolic above 140 starts to, I start to get less and less excited that I'm in front of an HRS. That's- you know, yes. you gotta, you got to go back to the, you know, again, these old papers tell you the real story. When the hepatorenal syndrome was described in the 50s, early 60s, there were patients with blood pressure of 100 over 60, with sodium was 128. They were oliguric. And, and, and that's the type of phenotype that, in amazing, those three factors that I just mentioned, they are not part of the diagnostic criteria from the International <laughs> Club of ascites. I, I know. I, they so put ridiculous. all this criteria that, that are so irrelevant, and the bottom line is that the phenotype of the patient is not in the definition. So, yes, I pay a lot of attention to that. Having said that, It's interesting because you can have a patient with a blood pressure of 125 over 65. The miniature pressure may be 78, 80. That, you know, you may think that that's inconsistent with a hepatorenal syndrome, but it's not necessarily inconsistent because there is sort of a, you know, there's a shift. There's an autoregulatory curve that has shifted and, in a patient, in in a normal individual, a map of seventy five is a great map, a great mean pressure. But in a cirrhotic, that presents with a map of uh, seventy one or seventy two, he may need a map of ninety or eighty five to adequately perfuse the kidneys, and and that's something that okay. um, that I pay attention to.
1: The the norepinephrine you were talking about that those patients must they they need a central line and they they're generally in the ICU when you're doing that.
2: Yes, that is uh, unfortunately a limitation. There are some uh, hospitals in the country that I've had just anecdotal conversations that have implemented protocols in step-down units, uh, and they can use norepinephrine. It's something that I I am trying to, to also implement in my hospital, but yes most of the times or almost universally norepinephrine requires intensive care uh, unit uh, transfer which obviously is is a limitation because you you have to uh, you know as a consultant communicate your recommendation to the to the primary service which in then is going to call the ICU and the ICU is going to call you back and you're going to have be in this triangle negotiation to try to to uh, transfer a patient to the ICU who is otherwise normal intensive in the eyes of the intensive. So there's a little bit of a disconnect in the understanding and and sometimes you, you you call and you say, hey, this is what I would like to do with these patients and sometimes yeah, that makes total sense. Let's do it. And then you know I go to my computer late at night review and the, 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 what's going on with the patient and, and I pull the maps and the maps are like 65. And I call the ICU nurse, and they see, yeah, we're doing MAP of 65. That's what we do for Lebofett. Uh And so there's, the, many things get lost in translation. Uh, it's not a common approach to to uh, give norepinephrine to a golden MAP of 85. So even when you want to do it, it doesn't get executed properly.
1: Joel, it sounds like you need one of your checklists.
2: <laughs> or improve communication.
1: Yeah, Yeah, there you go. <laughs> These were brilliant recommendations tonight. <laughs> well the 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 thing I wanted to point out so our producers had done a re, a bit of like kind of looking into literature this Wang et al did a systematic review last year where they looked at terlipressin head to head uh, terlipressin and al- albumin versus norepi and albumin versus the mitodrine octreotide albumin cocktail and it looks like it looks like norepinephrine is is at least as good or or better than terlipressin. But Turlapress, my, from my understanding, it's it's just more convenient to give it. So, do you think that's going to be coming to to the states at any point? Matt, can I just step in because yeah.
3: I, I know what I, I, I know what I wanted to say when you asked that, and I, and I think what I want to when you are thinking about moving these patients to the ICU, I think you need to think about what is the prognosis of the patient who has a syndrome that you do not reverse, and those patients are going to die right? If you have a classic type one HRS where their creatinine is going up and if they're not going to get a liver transplant quickly within a couple of weeks, they're probably going to be dead. And so, you know, it's, you know, you you might want to talk about how much it costs to move the ICU or what a hassle it is to do, but we are truly dealing with a mortal condition here. And you're, you're talking about here, here's our last chance to save this guy. And so, um, you know,
1: Fantastic Push. point, yeah. So it's worth it. Uh, essentially, you're saying it's it's worth it. If if we if that's what the patient has, and that's the right thing for the patient, you got to do it. And I don't think anyone's gonna. I mean, you 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 could fight. It's worth fighting for that.
2: That's my point. Yeah, it, it is absolutely. It's a great point, Joel. Because and that's when once again comes to really assess your patient uh, very well. Because you have a, a cirrhotic patient with a bilirubin of thirty four encephalopathic, uh, really uh, very, very ill um, with very low, with, that is not going to get a liver transplant, um, that you think, even if I revert his kidney function, how much better this patient is going to be? What is his life expectancy? Is his quality of life going to be meaningful? But you So that patient, I may not, I'd say, you know, maybe this is yeah. a patient that we need to call palliative care. But all cirrhotics are not the same. You may have a highly functional cirrhotic. It just happens to get HRS one That patient is worth the fight and give him a chance to go to the ICU. And
0: and not just the ICU. Fifteen years ago when I was in fellowship, if it was an alcoholic cirrhotic, especially with the recent drinking, it was not an indication to do dialysis once all the other therapies had failed. Um, Obviously, if you're really hepatorenal and you're not a liver transplant candidate ever, then you're not going to put this person's last days on dialysis, and you really do need to invoke palliative care. And either way, we need to invoke palliative care. But nowadays, at least, um, for the patients who are alcoholic, if you can keep them alive for six months and they can abstain during that time, then they might become a liver transplant candidate. So if you get to the point where that's where nephrologists are really getting is not when to start hepatorenal cocktail as much as when to start dialysis in someone who's failed. And we are often struggling with this, but but in a patient who is a recent use of alcohol and hepatology comes by and says they're not a candidate for transplant, you still have to give them that chance. If you can keep them alive for six months, they may be a candidate for transplant. Now, how often does that actually occur? Probably less than 10% of the time, but you still have to give them that chance.
3: Yeah. And I, I would concur uh, with Bill there is that I was taught that hepatorenal syndrome was a disease that you did not dialyze. Like that was the dogma when I was a fellow and that, and we have definitely changed that. And in selected patients, we offer it.
1: I wanted to quickly just, uh, JCV, I'll, I'll throw it to you. Hepatorenal syndrome, the type one versus type two, how, how important is that to really kind of differentiate?
2: Well, when you are dealing with patients with acute kidney injury in a hospital and cirrhosis, uh, you, you're almost always dealing with hepatorenal syndrome type 1. So the type 1 is is a rapidly progressive uh, AKI, creatinine, deteriorates fairly quickly within a span of two weeks and uh, has all the elements of AKI. Hepatorenal syndrome type 2 refers for more of a chronic uh, subacute insidious entity. Uh, that I can say that occasionally when I see patients in clinic that come uh, refer because they have elevated serum creatinine, they happen to be cirrhotic, and there's nothing you can find to explain why the creatinine is sitting at 1.8 and four months ago was 1.3 and there's really nothing else going on. I mean, you know, this patient may have HRS type 2. There's not really a patient that I would... Uh, you know, put them on a hepatorenal cocktail or anything like that. I kind of follow them alone. They they tend to be uh, they tend to be fairly um, sort of benign in the course. Uh, uh, so I don't really uh, use that diagnosis in a hospital setting um, often. I think it's mostly HRS type one what we see and what the real challenging patients are.
1: I wanted to ask about paracentesis before we we start to sort of wrap up here because. It it often comes up where the the patient's kidneys are failing. They they maybe they have tense ascites or massive ascites, and you're just kind of wondering like what to do there. Like, may you you certainly at some point are going to need to do a diagnostic power on that person while they're in the hospital. But then there's always this kind of dilemma we run into: how much fluid we tap them until they're dry. Um, Bill, I'll ask you first, and then we can kind of go around. Uh, what's your tact in those patients?
0: Yeah, I'd like to actually hear what everybody says when we go around because I I try and get somebody uvolemia. You you know you want to take off enough and not too much. You want to make sure they get their abdomen back so that they don't drop their pressure. And um, you know I I I can't tell you how many times I've come by the next day and they got seven liters of a large volume paracentesis and they've gone from a creatinine of two point zero to two point seven. And you say, oh well, that's why, and they shouldn't have done that. Uh, and so. I, th- I think I'm always an nephrologist, and we always think about the kidneys always trying to gradually remove urine from the person uh, a- a- on a stable 24-hour basis, and that's why we like these CVVHs versus uh, acute HDs every once in a while. It's the same kind of thing. I think gradual fluid removal is best. I'd rather have a two-liter paracentesis every other day than seven liters uh, once a week uh, in somebody. So, you kind of, it's, it's a, it's a gestalt, I guess is the word. It's a, um, it's a, it's a judgmental decision, but you know, I'd like to hear what everybody else thinks too. I,
3: I like the large volume. I like to get that fluid off them, replace it with, p- replace the albumin. I'm happy to actually start the albumin beforehand. Even um, if you anticipate a large volume, usually you can. Um, but I, I like getting that fluid off. I do worry about this 10 societies collapsing the renal vein and the IVC, putting back pressure on the kidney. And so um, I think removing that fluid is the right way to go. Um,
2: yeah, I, I find this area difficult. I think it's uh, controversial. You open a textbook in nephrology and you're going to read uh, one of the most common precipitating factors for age H- hepatorenal is large volume paracentesis. Um, uh, and then you have this whole modern uh, 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 literature uh, speaking about abdominal compartment syndrome, uh, you know, killing patients in the ICU. So you're kind of in the middle of okay, which one is true, really? It's really confusing, and the literature is really not very doesn't help you. It's incomplete. Uh, there aren't a lot of papers that clearly show that LVP precipitates HRS. But like Bill said, I've been in that same situation. That I see patients getting worse after an LVP uh, during my practice. But at the same time, you know, if I have a patient with a tense and you measure blood pressure and the blood pressure is 28 and the patient's bell is about to explode and it's very uncomfortable, of course, I want to send a patient for a parasyntesis. So I don't really have uh, any... Uh, a clear answer. Obviously, I'm just giving you both ends. Uh, and that's how I try, I, I am currently in this in this topic. I kind of go by the patient. Um, if there's uh, evidence of abdominal compartment syndrome and with very high blood pressure, I'm gonna be very proactive about draining it out. Um, but many times I do it, and the patient gets worse. So I, I'm not sure. It's it's very difficult. It's a very difficult uh, area.
1: I'm hearing that that I'm not alone in in finding this to be a conundrum and and yeah, being that's a good and point. and it seems this is one of those things like we we talk to specialists on the show all the time, and they when we ask when we ask things where we see the practice just vary so widely, it's often because it's sort of an evidence free zone or where there it's a highly artful practice where you just kind of have to take it case by case. It sounds like this goes along those lines.
2: Let me just add a comment. Uh... So when you read the clinical trials in the world of hepatorenal syndrome, you look at the methods. Uh, they always make a little comment about whether paracentesis was allowed or not during the trial, and in most of the trials, it was it is allowed. So that kind of goes <coughs> against the premise that LVP should be LVP should be detrimental to the course of HRS. Okay, and in what I try to do also, if I have a patient that I am actively treating for hepatorenal syndrome with, let's say, norepinephrine, a vasoconstrictor, and I am pushing the MAP, and the MAP is going up successfully, and the creatinine is reaching a plateau, starting to curve down nicely. Without norepinephrine running, I am very comfortable sending that patient for an LVP with albumin, depending on the volume. I'm actually very comfortable putting back on diuretics, because you are really maintaining renal perfusion with that MAP, and, you know, we, we stopped the diuretics before we diagnose HRS, but once you're diagnosed and you're treating it, there's no reason not to bring the diuretics back into the picture if you're trying to remove volume. I don't know if... Wow, know.
1: that is pretty cool. I have not seen that done. <laughs> that's, that's pretty awesome. Joel, have you done that?
2: No, I was thinking that was pretty crazy.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I like because it. it- you know, think about it, you know, hepatorenal syndrome is not a volume depleted state, right? It's, it's, a, it's a disorder of hemodynamics that you're restoring with your intervention. Once you restore it, if the patient has a massive edema and, or urine output is not picking up, uh, you, you could add a diuretic. And I've done it uh, many, many times and, and it is rarely a problem, actually.
1: Fantastic. Let me check in with our producer, Dr. Justin Burke, and see if we have anything that we're missing here before we kind of get some take-home points.
0: I don't think so. I think if someone wants to explicitly say that uh, what specific triggers can cause type 1 HRS, we mentioned LVP, but not things like infection or um, anything else that are common uh, presenting things. But otherwise, I think we've hit most... um,
2: most everything that's been asked and uh, oh other risk factors for hr i don't think so. i think i think we're in a good place i think this has been great yeah
1: so i'll leave that I out think, there bill is there any major well, triggers or risk factors we missed
2: you know i,
0: I know I, I think anything can kind of tip them over they're so chronically Volume challenge, you know, you blow them a little bit in one direction and they're going to tip over with a little peritonitis or one too large of a volume paracentesis or whatever. And there's a lot of different triggers, even a simple UTI or hepatic encephalopathy, and they're not taking the rest of their meds and then everything tips over. But um, so I think there's a lot of different triggers and it's really key, like uh, JCV said from the very beginning, to take the appropriate history and physical to, to nail it all down. I was wondering if we could just briefly mention the um, diagnostic criteria for hepatorenal by the the journal club. And, and, and I think that, you know, a lot of the problem that nephrologists have with this um, with this criteria is that it's not really specific to hepatorenal. We, we're so used to seeing renal failure of all sorts of types, and then we narrow it down on the different types of renal failure. But I think in the, in the, um, the ascites club, or I can't remember the exact name of the different clubs that they use to define these things. But I, I think a lot of them are just non-specific uh, terms to diagnose renal failure, which is good. You want to make sure you do have renal failure, but there's a delta creatinine. There's a, a, a change in urine output. And, and you know there's all these things that are important to make sure that you're in the renal failure realm, but they're not really specific to hepatorenal. For example. You can have oliguria and hepatorenal and ATN and obstruction and all sorts of different renal failures. So so the reason I think nephrologists kind of have a problem with some of the diagnostic criteria is that it's not... We, we want a diagnostic criteria that's more specific to narrowing down if it's a hepatorenal versus other causes of renal failure. And this kind of just throws you in the it's renal failure realm. Um, and so I think that's why we... That's what this whole, um, really, this whole podcast is about is to really how can we narrow down someone who has a pattern renal versus pre renal versus ATN versus underlying GN or bio-cast nephropathy or all the different things that we've discussed.
1: Beautiful. Joel, any take home points that you wanted to give?
3: Sorry about yeah. That. Uh, these are less uh, take home points, but you know, uh, we're talking about a pattern renal syndrome because that's a region in neph madness. And there are, uh, two matchups in this region. The first one is going to be, um, uh, Terlipressin versus norepinephrine, and what that really represents is: Do you think that uh, terlipressin has a magic ability to correct hepato renal syndrome, or do you think? It's all about the mean arterial pressure, in which case you go with the norepinephrine, the one that's easily available in the United States, at least. Um, And so that's the first matchup. And the second matchup is actually something that we have not uh, addressed here. I just want to briefly go into that is uh, there was a, uh, a pathology series that came out a few years ago it was mostly autopsies and they looked at people that had uh, cirrhosis and they found a very high rate of um, bile acid casts throughout the nephra, uh, throughout the tubules. And they hypothesized that these casts were actually causing the kidney failure. And they were found in patients with both hepatorenal syndrome and without hepatorenal syndrome, but kidney failure at the time of death. And, uh, they were very frequent and it was a pretty compelling story, uh, and there's been additional data that's come out afterwards. And I think you have a uh, a nephrology field that's divided with uh, uh, half of people thinking that these are incidental findings, that you have these very high levels of bilirubin and they will form casts, but these are not pathogenic. And then you have another group of people that find these bile casts to be uh, pathogenic. And if you go to the, well, I don't think we're going to talk about that further here, um, but if you go to the Neff Madness site, there's a real nice, um, uh, description of what the data is. And we've got an essay from actually one of the, um, uh, authors of that original path study, uh, Anthony Chang, uh, was one of the authors and he wrote an editorial about that. And he'll, he'll be, he'll give his perspective. Um, but that's the other region. And so, uh, when you go to, uh, Neff Madness, you'll get to make your call, Bill. How do you go on terlopressin versus norepi?
0: <laughs> I've got to put down my nickel. Yeah, yeah, I gotta lay it down. I'm going norepinephrine for the win.
3: Okay, and bile acids, uh, pathol- pathogenic or incidental?
0: Even though Tony Chang is from Chicago, I am gonna go that they are not pathogenic. He may kill me, but I'm gonna say they're not.
3: Okay, and then terlopressin versus non-pathogenic. You no, show- I
0: pick no- I think I. I think I picked norepi. Norepi fin- finished. Sorry, pathogenic? yeah. So norepi wins it all
3: jcv what do you what do you got uh, norepi versus terley i know what you're going to say though
2: uh, <laughs> uh i go with miniature pressure i.e norepinephrine to win that bracket okay all the way through very very good uh and, j- and just to complete the
3: bracket what do you have uh, pathogenic or incidental for
2: uh i think uh i'm gonna go with uh pathogenic i think it's uh it's hot Nice. Um, and, you know, I'm spinning the urine in all these patients every day, and I cannot tell you how many times I see beautiful renal tubular epithelial cell casts when the bilirubins are, like, 45. And and it makes me wonder, those are not innocent bystanders. epithelial cell casts in, 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 a, in, a, in the urine, to me, that's a little bit of damage. Uh, so... I think it's definitely exaggerated and overinflated and Tony Chang is if he's listening he's not going to be happy. I think there's a, a lot of hype about that. I don't think is that common, uh, but I think there is something behind it.
3: Okay, I'm going to go I'm going to go with um uh over Norepinephrine in the first bracket. Ooh. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm going to go with uh, I'm going to go with incidental finding rather than uh, pathogenic for a uh, bile wow. acid, and then I'll take terlipressin for the region. Wow. Wow.
1: Interesting,
3: interesting.
0: Yeah. Three different answers, all around. <laughs> I'm, nice.
1: I'm I'm going to take I'm going to take norepi straight through because I I just can't wait to put somebody on norepi and then try to put <laughs> restart the diuretics. That's my that's one of my my new goals in life.
0: So make sure the dialysis machine is close by.
3: (laughs) Justin, we're not going to let you escape.
0: You know, terlopressin is a medicine I don't have available, so I don't know a lot about. The uh, bile acids thing sounds weird too. So uh, if I'm going to treat the bile acids, I'm definitely going to go with terlopressin for that.
2: So terlopressin (laughs) treating bile acids and... Normal sailing for the win.
1: He's not licensed yet. It might be. uh, Are you licensed yet? (laughs) Okay. Thank you, everybody, for your time. This was a lot of fun. I I know this is going to be really useful for everyone else, as it was very useful for me. So thank you.
0: Excellent. This was really unbelievable. Thanks yeah, to, to Joel lot. for having me involved, and thanks, thanks to you guys. I mean, it's it's really amazing what you guys are doing. So very cool.
1: Well, this one I literally could not have done without Justin and uh, Joel. Uh, I got to thank you for dropping this whole Nef Madness thing on our lap this year. This is this is you know I think this is gonna be huge for both of us. This has been another episode of the curbsiders bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can get show notes at the curbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at the curbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes, or contact us at the curbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to to our wonderful writers and producers for this episode, Dr. Justin Lee Burke and Nora Toronto, who is graduating medical school in the coming months here. And to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Also, thank you to our friends at Neff Madness and AJKD. K- Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado. Working tonight, co-hostless, which is a word that I, a term that I just coined. Good night, Stuart. Good night, Paul.
2: This is great, guys. Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, this is really what you guys are doing is unbelievable. Uh, I'm a big fan of curbsiders. Thank you. Um, and I uh, try to uh, listen to uh, every time uh, Kidney Boy is on, of course. <laughs> I love what you guys, uh, somebody told him when he did, I think it was the, the, the Acid Base uh, podcast that you guys said that his voice, if the kidneys were to talk, uh, they will have the voice of Joel. And oh, that yeah. was <laughs> that was so funny. That, um, that
1: was. And then Joel's response was if the kidneys could talk, it would be terrifying.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that. That was so good. Yeah.